Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Father, we need your word today. We need you to breathe life and, and hope and peace into our hearts by your spirit. As we're in this season of Advent and a season of waiting and longing and anticipation, uh, we find ourselves there as well. And so we, we pray that light would break through today as we encounter you through your word. And so we lift our hearts in this time to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, today is the second Sunday of Advent. Um, this is the first Sunday is the Sunday of hope. The second Sunday of Advent is the Sunday of love and a call to preparation. And so it, it, Advent is a time of looking ahead, of waiting, of anticipation. I think we get that a little bit mixed up, that Advent is different than like Christmas time. Because for us, Christmas time starts as soon as Santa appears in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, right? Like that's the moment where Christmas time begins and Black Friday happens and the hustle and bustle of the season begins and it's all warmth and fuzzies and nostalgia all the way through the month. The season of Advent is more typical of the historic church calendar and honestly more typical of our actual experience of life because Advent tells us that there's times of darkness, times of silence, times where we wonder if God's present, wonder if his voice can come to us. And in that darkness, we anticipate and look ahead to his presence. And so as we've been in the Gospel of John, we're introduced to Jesus. The whole Gospel, this whole book has been written to introduce us to who Jesus is. And that is the theme. We've seen the importance of the incarnation that has been the prominent theme of John's gospel so far from verse 1 to all that has followed that God's word, the eternal word, who is in fact God, became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the first four chapters of John that we've worked, walked through have established that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Christ. And remember, the whole theme of John's gospel is that all of this was written down so that we might believe that those things are true. Well, chapter 5 to 10 is a turning point that starts to give evidence for those things. And so now it's established this is who Jesus is. Now how do we see it? How do we prove it? How do we know that it's true? And so last week, we saw Jesus come back to Jerusalem. Now, the last time he was in Jerusalem, he was literally flipping tables over in the temple. And, he, and remember, when he was flipping tables over, they said, well, show us a sign. Show us a miracle to prove your authority in this. And we've seen this, this dichotomy in John's gospel between those who are looking for the power of God in miracles versus those who actually believe in Jesus. And we saw this last week that... Jesus came back to Jerusalem where people wanted signs and wonders but did not believe, and there was a crippled man, and so he healed him, and the only response Jesus got to healing him was anger from the people in the city. And so today, they, they were angry because he, was, he healed the guy on the Sabbath. So today, we see Jesus respond to their allegations that he was breaking God's law. But what we'll see is that Jesus was a troublemaker, like, he did not 
back down. He did not feel pressure. He did not soften his stance. He didn't soften his position. He doubled down and tripled down on everything. And what he shows today is that he and God are one. That he is, in fact, God in flesh. And so this is what we read in John chapter 5. He had healed the guy. The guy ratted him out to the religious leaders and said, that's the one who healed. He warned the guy, hey, you're well now, so go and sin no more that nothing else will happen to you. So he goes away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who healed him, and this is what we read, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than all of these will he show, so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, it is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him the authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the, in, in the tombs will hear this, his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so as we read this passage, Jesus is responding. Remember, this is, this is, John tells us, this is why they wanted to kill him. Because they come to him, and they, they confront him about this healing on the Sabbath, saying, you're working on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response to him, did you, see, did you catch it? His response is, well, my father's working on the Sabbath, so so am I. He's, he's aligning himself with God, and they clearly caught the implication of what he was saying because it moved from persecuting Jesus to now they wanted all the more to kill Jesus because not only is he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. The leaders at the time knew exactly what he was doing. And so any pretense we might have that Jesus was just a good teacher who taught good things but didn't make these kind of claims or it was only developed later that he was, he was claiming these kinds of things that he didn't ever claim to be God, this, this shows in clarity in his words that confronted by the leaders of the day, at risk of death, he doubled down on all of it. And so there's three statements, three truly trulys that happen in the passage. In the Greek, this is the word amen. So it's amen, amen. And what Jesus is saying is, pay attention. 
This statement is something you can count on. This is bedrock truth. And so that shapes the way that we're going to look at this today. We're going to look at these three truly trulys. The first, the third, and then we'll come back to the second. But as we do, a little bit of context here too. So first, truly, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he begins with. Truly, truly, I say the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So truly, truly, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this idea of God working on the Sabbath was actually a, a source of major debate among rabbis at the time before Christ and through the time that Jesus was in his life and ministry, as we read in the Gospels. And so this was a debate of like, okay, if God calls us not to work on the Sabbath, then does God work on the Sabbath? Would God be sinning if God works on the Sabbath? Um, which is an amazing thought exercise, the idea that God ever would actually not work. If God stops working, we cease. God is the giver and sustainer of all life. He's not just like a cosmic watchmaker that built this place and built this universe and built your body and wound it up and then let it go like a spinning top. He is the source of all life, the sustainer of all life, the creator and the only hope we have for all life and breath. He gives us everything that we have. And, and so the idea that God would ever cease to work is ludicrous. And so the rabbis had to work this out. And so they were saying, well, God is so big that he never lifts anything over his head. So we can't lift anything over our head on the Sabbath. Like, this is the kind of lengths that they were going to. Now, we, we might look at that and say, like, ah, oh, that's ridiculous. But we do this too, Right? Or we'll, we'll try to create, like, what are the lines that I can walk up to? And so we start adding rules and laws to what's actually in God's word for what we think we ought to do or not ought to do and holding ourselves to moralistic, legalistic standards that are not actually found in Scripture. And we've been doing this for entire, the entirety of human existence. This was even in the garden that you see the man and the woman, that when the snake came to the woman, the woman and he said, you know, did God say that you can't eat any of the trees, in the, eat fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And she said, no, he said we can't eat from that one tree and we can't touch it lest we die. So she was adding to God's commands to her. We've been doing it ever since. And so Jesus is cutting through that and he's saying, okay, but not only is he saying, you know, you, you're taking the Sabbath too, too, not too seriously, but you're adding to what God's word has called us to. He, he could have just said that. Don Carson, a theologian, said here, Jesus could have noted that the prohibition of work on the Sabbath had reference to work normally done the other six days of the week and therefore scarcely applied to a situation where a man, an invalid for 38 years, carried his mat home after a miraculous cure. But instead... Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation also justify his. Like, do you see that? Jesus could have just said what, he's done, what he does in some of the other Gospels, where he says like, he heals a woman who's bent over from spiritual oppression and a physical condition, and then they confront him about healing her on the Sabbath, and he says, hey, even you would pull an ox out of a ditch on the Sabbath, but you're not going to let me heal this woman? So he shows, like, you have a dissonant understanding of how you're applying these rules. He could have rested there, but instead, Jesus picks a fight here and says, oh, no, no, no. God's continuously working, and that's why I did this. It's an audacious claim. Like, these, he's talking to people who would not speak God's name for fear of taking it in vain. 
that would come and speak the word Lord, Adonai, when they came to God's name in reading scripture because they were, they were so scared of using it in vain and had such reverence for the divine name. And so for Jesus to call God Father, such an intimate term, and align himself so closely, they understood it. Now, as he talks about this, under this, under this truly, truly, when, in verse 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what the Father is doing. Then we have four explanations that Jesus gives. You can see them in your Bible because it has the word for, not F-O-U-R, but F-O-R. So for, because in, in explanation of this, there's four ways that Jesus says it. So you see it here. If you look at your Bibles, it's in verse 19, verse 20, verse 21, and then there's actually one in verse 22 that the ESV doesn't have, and I don't know why, but um, verse 22 in the Greek reads, for the Father judges no one. So these are four explanations that Jesus gives. So these, this helps us to understand that he is the Son of God. First, Jesus does whatever the Father does. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. I'm being very creative with my points today. <laughs> if, um, if I ever preach something that you can't find in God's word, and if I ever don't get to Jesus in a sermon, um, you, please confront me about that. You have, my, you have my, my request to do so. For Jesus does whatever the Father does. This is a statement of the simultaneous action of the Father and the Son. We are, we are getting a glimpse, peering into Trinitarian reality here. We're getting a glimpse of what it is within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existing in perfect unity, in loving unity together. And so he's saying here, the work he did in healing on the Sabbath is the work of God. He is doing the work of the Father. Now, this is something that we don't quite grasp the, the meaning of Jesus calling him Father and aligning himself with his work here because we live in a self-determined and self-made world. Most of you have decided what you wanted to do with your life. You decided to go into a certain career. You decided to follow a certain path. If you went to school, you decided on which school and how that was going to lead to your career. Sometimes you decided which career you wanted to go into, and then the degree you have has nothing to do with the work that you're doing. Um, and, but, but whatever the case, you have probably decided most of those things. I don't know if you're doing the work that your father did or your mother did. That's just not as common now. It's not an expectation now. I get asked that on occasion where people are like, oh, was your dad a pastor? No. <laughs> I love my dad. He, is, he was never a pastor. That's not how this worked. I sensed a calling from God. I submitted myself to other pastors and leaders, and along the way I've continued to do so, and those callings have been confirmed, and so I followed that path. But it wasn't like my dad's a pastor, and my grandpa was a pastor, and my great-grandpa was a pastor, and it's all been, I'm, I'm expected to be a pastor. That just hasn't been passed down to me. In the context of the ancient world, when, where Jesus is speaking here, that was the case. Jesus was a carpenter or a handyman. Why? Because Joseph was a carpenter or a handyman. He was called the son of the carpenter. And so he's, he took on the profession that his dad had done. And this was the case for the vast majority of people, that sons would do the work of their fathers, they would apprentice under their fathers, they would learn the work of their fathers, and then they would do the work of their fathers. And so for Jesus here to use that language of God is intimate, but it also indicates something that he's claiming and saying this now is the work that he is doing because as the son of God, he is doing the work that his father has done. And so that's why the leaders at the time saw this as heresy, why they wanted to kill him. Is they, were saying, they understood he was aligning himself with God as God. 
And then he goes farther. He says, second, the father loves Jesus, and he shows him all that he does. So the father loves Jesus and shows him all that he does, which is verse 20. And so in eternity, and this is something we need to see and to grasp, is that, that it, it's not like Jesus came into existence when Mary conceived. And I think we can think that way sometimes, that the Father existed from eternity, and then Jesus was generated, and then the Spirit was generated. And that's actually a Trinitarian heresy. <laughs> but I think functionally, we can kind of like think that way, like, oh, the Father created everything, the Father was the one, was God in the Old Testament, Jesus is God in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is God in our lives now. And so that's, there's actually a, a term for that that's called modalism. And, and it's not what we have represented in Scripture or in the, the history of Christian theology. Christian theology and Scripture tell us that, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are eternally coexistent and co-equal God. That the incarnation is when the Son took on flesh and became fully dependent on the Father and obedient to the Father and led by the Spirit. And so, but Jesus here is giving us a glimpse of the eternally existent love of God. And what this tells us is way better than just God suddenly becoming, you know, having a second part of himself in the Son, because this is telling us that God the Father has loved Jesus for all of eternity. That God's love, and this is why we can say God is love, which might be the most popular theological position Christians can hold in our present moment is that God is love. Now, there are implications beyond that, but we can say that God is love because God did not need to create us in order to become a loving God. Do you know that? We are not at the center of God's attributes. I know that's hard because none of us can imagine a moment when we didn't exist. God has eternally existed in love Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons in perfect loving unity. And that means that creation, this world, and ourselves are an explosion of the overflow of God's love as he shares that with us. That's way better than, well, God created this thing and had to figure out how to love us. That's what it is to be a parent, right? <laughs> you have a baby and you, you feel this sense of attachment and love, and then there are moments as a parent where you're like, I need to figure out how to love this child. And as a child, there are moments when you're like, I don't love my parents. <laughs> like we, we have to figure out how to love. God has eternally existed as love and in love, and we get to experience the overflow of it. And so creation is an overflow of God's love. And Jesus here is saying that the Father has loved him eternally. The reason Jesus can pick a fight with the religious leaders when they want to kill him and have the confidence to be able to stand on truth in that moment and not get distracted by all the other pressures around him or sway or diminish himself is because Jesus understands the love of God and the love of Father in an eternal way that is this, the sustainer of his soul. Do you understand that that's true for us too? Because often when we have our own anxieties and fears and worries and doubts and depression and, and, and we're caught up in, in racing minds and trying to figure out life and we get, we get exhausted, like, well, that, that's, that, there's a reality within us. Sometimes that's the circumstances around us, but there's also some truth that we don't often actually believe that God loves us from eternity past. We don't rest in that. 
But the father loves Jesus and he shows him all he does. Third four is that Jesus raises the dead and is the source of life. And I love this, right? Because he goes, all right, the father loves the son in verse 20 and shows him all that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives life to those to whom he will. I love this because if you know where John's gospel goes from here, this is Jesus saying to them, oh, you're mad that I healed this angry guy on the Sabbath who's not even grateful to me? Just wait till you see what I do with Lazarus. Which was it. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, when he, re- when he, resur- well, when he resuscitated Lazarus after he'd been dead three days, that's, that was it. That was when the leader said, we gotta, we gotta kill him, it's gotta be over. And so here, he's already giving us this preview and he's saying to them, you think this was a big deal? There's even greater work coming because I've been given the power to give life. So we need to hear this. Jesus raises the dead and is the source of life. He is claiming to be God. Now this has been the claim from, again, chapter one, verse one. But here Jesus is giving the evidence to support it. And again, this is where we need to understand Jesus is not just a normal teacher. This is what, a normal teacher doesn't do this. Think about the best teacher you've ever had in your life. Like a teacher that, was, that changed your life. Do you have one? When I was an undergrad, I had a teacher named John Lundy. John, I, I, was, I didn't know how to study because I made it through most of high school asleep. And, and I got in over my head, and John Lundy was a professor, a New Testament professor in undergrad that, that legitimately changed my course academically and personally. He had personal care. He had real challenge. He was brilliant academically, but he made things accessible. And he legitimately changed the trajectory of my education by investing into me and helping me figure out how to navigate the waters of academia and how to get into rhythms and to, to study well. But as great as John Lundy was, and as much as he taught me about Jesus and about the Bible, as much as he modeled about Jesus and about the Bible, he never granted anyone life. He never raised somebody from the dead. He never had that kind of power or authority. Jesus is making a big claim here. He has the power of life, the power to raise the dead. And he's saying, you're about to see it. The fourth four is that the Father has given Jesus all honor. So the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so do you understand now, Jesus says, all right, first of all, I'm doing the work that my Father's doing because I'm a good Son. Second, the Father loves Jesus, loves me, and and shows me all that he's done. Third, I I raise the dead and I'm the source of life. Like, he's just getting more and more extreme in his claim to deity. And now he goes as far as to say, the Father doesn't judge anybody. I'm the judge. And in fact, the honor and worship and glory that the Father is due, he's given to me. And if you don't honor me, you're in trouble. If any human being other than Jesus says to you, God calls you to worship me. You know they're either crazy or a liar or they're a complete 
heretic. He's claiming to be God. He is saying, you all need to honor and worship me. And he's shown it. He said, I gave you a sign. I healed this guy who's been crippled for 38 years. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the judge over you in the end. And all that honor the Son, just as the Father, this is an explicit claim to equality with God. And he's not just an ambassador of God. He's not just a prophet of God. He's not just a priest to draw our worship to God. He is, he, because an ambassador never receives the king's honor. He's saying here that he is due the honor that the Father is due. And so Jesus' claims have to be addressed. In our own hearts, we need to take these seriously and address them. Does, do we pity Jesus for being crazy? Do we hate Jesus for being a heretic? Or do we worship Jesus as God incarnate? And this is where we get, into, again, to this idea of Trinitarian reality and understanding who Jesus is and understanding the reality of the incarnation. <clears throat> because I, we too often misunderstand Trinitarian theology and it turns into terrible theology. Now, I know right now some of you are, are thinking like, you know, we hear like, the, I, this is one of the classic things like where Christians will be like, ah, you know, you'll just never understand the Trinity. The Trinity is a mystery. The Trinity isn't truly a mystery. It's very clear in Scripture. But it is true that the Trinity, the, the triune God, is outside of anything else we experience in our lives. And thank God for that. Because God is outside of anything else we experience in our lives. But he is not unclear about the eternally existent Father, Son, and Spirit who are one God. And so it's outside of our experience, outside of our ability to quite conceive, but it isn't unclear. And, and, but it shows up in the way that we talk about the atonement even and our salvation. And so often you'll hear, you know, you'll hear, I don't know if you've heard, but sometimes people will make the claim that Christianity is really just cosmic child abuse. And so you'll hear even Christians say something like this, that, well, the Father's wrath burned, against sin burned because of his holiness and justice, and he demands punishment and satisfaction. And so the Son, on the other hand, is loving and compassionate and wanted to extend mercy and grace to us human sinners. And so the Son took on the punishment we deserve, absorbing the Father's fury. But at its core, that is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Trinity that goes against what Jesus is claiming here. If God the Father sent the Son to accomplish what he was unwilling to do and is the only one with wrath and the Son is the only, the only one with love and compassion, then yes, but that breaks apart the Trinity and God is one, Father, Son, and Spirit. So as Tom McCall says, the, the Holy Trinity is completely unified in divine intentions and actions. Unless there are multiple gods, we can't believe otherwise. Some part or parts of God are not against me while another part is for me. The Son does not love me and bless me while the Father hates me and curses me. Rather, it is God who is for us. No part or aspect of God and surely no divine person wants to see me damned while another wants to see me saved. Not at all. The triune God whose essence is holy love is for us. This is a better gospel. This is the gospel Jesus is claiming. He's saying the Father and I are one. We work in one, and everything I do is from him. All right, the third truly, truly, again, we'll come back to the second. It happens in verse 25. So this is our, that is, truly, truly, Jesus will judge. Now, he's already said this a little bit above, but truly, truly, Jesus will judge. So he goes on. An hour is coming and is now here. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice 
um, hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And so he, 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 and he goes on, for the Father has life in himself. He has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And so don't marvel that an hour is coming when all in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And to those who have done good to resurrection and life, and those who have done evil to resurrection and judgment. I can do nothing of my own. I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus here is saying, we, we get a sense here of what we call inaugurated eschatology, the already and the not yet, right? He says, the hour is coming and is now here. He's saying, the judgment has come, and there's more judgment coming. And, and, he, and this is the reality of the Christian life, if, if you think about it. The way that we talk about, about following Jesus, think about the words we use to follow Jesus. We might say, like, well, I've been saved. Okay, that's, that's an already and not yet statement, right? What have you been saved from? Sin. Well, do you still sin? This morning already? <laughs> well, yeah, you've been saved from sin and saved from judgment and saved from hell already, finished, established in the work, finished work of Jesus, and you will be saved from those things in eternity. We've been justified, declared righteous, yes, and amen, in the finished work of Christ, and when you stand before the judgment seat of God, you'll be declared righteous. So already, not yet. We've been sanctified, cleansed, made holy by Christ, yes, and we haven't arrived yet. That's something that's going to progress all the way through our lives, and in the end, we'll be made fully holy in God's presence. We've been redeemed, purchased from slavery to sin. Yes, and yet, like Paul talks about in Romans 7, we still wrestle with it because we, we do the things we don't want to do. We don't do the things we want to do. We were wrestling inside of us. We can't even hold up to our own moral standards, our internal law. And yet, there's hope for us because the chains have been broken and we've been freed. We just don't know it yet. And in the end, we will experience it. We've been adopted as children of God. So yes, that's true. We're in one family of God, and yet you look around our country and around our world and realize it doesn't feel like all Christians are one family right now. But we'll experience that and trust that and, and see it in its fullness in the end when people from every tribe and tongue and nation are gathered at the throne of Jesus. We've been given life, now and for eternity. I don't know about you. I don't know if you feel like you're living in the midst of eternal life today. There's not many mornings that I wake up and I'm like, I will live forever. <laughs> right? The older I get, the more I wake up and I go, it's morning. <laughs> but we know it's coming. Do we live in the abundance and fullness of life every day as we wake up? No. But it's been given to us in Christ. The entirety of the Christian life is the already and the not yet. And so it shouldn't surprise us when Jesus says, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will rise. And by the way, when he's standing at the temple, you need to know that in the Kidron Valley that goes up toward the Mount of Olives, right outside of the temple wall, right outside of the courts where Jesus is standing, it is filled with tombs. And so when he says here, I don't know if you caught, but it says the tombs. I don't think this was him just like nebulous. I mean, it does mean that all the dead will rise from all over the world, but I don't think he was just you know, generally saying like in any tomb. I think he was saying to these people, do you see those tombs? 
the people in those tombs, in the tombs, are going to be raised to judgment as well. Like this was, he was saying to them, I am the eternal judge. But look at what he says. These are claims to deity. Truly, truly, Jesus will be judge. First, Jesus' words bring life. Do you see that? Those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live. This is the question today is, do you hear the voice of the Son of God as God's word is read to you? Do you have the ears to hear it? This is what Jesus says after, when he gets asked, like, why do you speak in parables? He says, because some people have ears to hear. I speak in parables so that those who don't have ears to hear won't understand. Do you have ears to hear the voice of the Son of God today? Because that's our only hope for life. This isn't new in John's gospel. Remember how, where we started. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Like this, is, this is Jesus explaining and claiming for himself what John has already told us is coming. I've heard stories of preaching professors. I didn't get to experience this, and I don't know what I would have done. But I've heard stories of preaching professors that bring their class of sem young seminarians, which preaching labs in seminary are the worst experience in the world. Because you preach a sermon, and there's like 12 seminarians in a little room. We had to like, we had, well, it was, we used VHS tapes. <laughs> no, maybe it was DVDs, and we had to record it and then critique ourselves, too. So they would have video recordings we would do. And, but you had 12 seminarians listening to your sermon and then critiquing you, and there is no one angrier or more critical than a seminarian. <laughs> um, but I've heard stories of, of a preaching professor that would bring his students out to a graveyard, and students generally think, like, oh, he's trying to give us, like, a, a soberness in life and death and mortality, but then would ask them to stand and preach their sermon to a tombstone. And I think that's a weird exercise. Why, why, what's to accomplish in that? The reason he had them deliver their sermon to a tombstone that they had chosen was to show them that their preaching alone, no matter how passionate, no matter how prepared, no matter how true, no matter how accurate, can never bring life from death. I think that's one of the most difficult things for me to understand as a preacher every week as I stand in front of you, Redemption Hill, is that, not to grasp it, I believe it fully in my heart, but it does not matter how good or bad my sermon is. It does not matter how passionately I want you to hear these things and believe them. It doesn't matter how eloquently they're delivered or if I stumble over words or it doesn't matter if the illustration hits or doesn't. It does, all of that stuff fades away. There is only one way that you can actually find life from death and that's if you hear the word of Jesus. That's the only hope. That's what I want for you today. I don't care if you like me or don't like me or think I can preach or don't. If you hear the words of Jesus and you get life from death, then thanks be to God. Jesus' words bring life, something we can't do. Second, Jesus is the judge, the son of man. He ties this, 
that it, the Father has granted life in himself, he's granted this to the Son, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is, this is what it, it comes from Daniel chapter 7, and I think there's actually, I think there's three aspects to the Son of Man title. I think that we need to understand, to understand what Jesus is saying. First, it comes from Daniel chapter 7, which we don't have time to dig into today, but it's saying that that there's someone in Daniel 7, this, this son of man who receives authority from God and is the intermediary between God and humanity with all authority that approaches the ancient of days and rules over God's people. And so Jesus is claiming to be this figure from Daniel 7. So there's a claim to authority and judgment there. I think there's also an aspect that's more natural when we read it. When we read son of man, we kind of think like, oh, he's fully God and fully human. I think there's an aspect of that, that he is God incarnate, but walked where humans walk and lived where humans lived. But I also think that it tells us that he's the one, a third aspect, is that he's the one who reveals God fully to humanity. And so he's telling us here, this is who he is. He shows us who God is. He's walking as one of us, and yet he has authority over all of us. And so if we reject Jesus, he's claiming, if you reject me, you bring the fullness of the judgment of God because I am the judge. Now, we get uncomfortable with that kind of exclusive exclusivity and exclusive claim, but this is the same thing we read in Acts 17 when Paul says, God has proven of the one who will judge all people, and he has proven it how? By raising him from the dead. He is the one who conquers death with life. And so Jesus here is saying, I am the judge, the son of man. He is the one that we need to turn to. And third, that Jesus is the one who resurrects people to judgment and to life. This is, again, something I don't think we think through. I think when we, we think about eternity and post-death as mostly a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. And I think even within that, if you've been, like, if you've been around Redemption Hill for a while, you, I, I hope you've heard, like, eternity is physical. We are resurrected bodily, like Jesus is. We will be in, in renewed and restored heaven and earth. It's not like this place burns up and we stay in some weird ethereal heaven for all of eternity with soft-focused lenses floating on clouds. Like, that's not biblical. It's a physical reality. Is this place restored? But I think still, we can have a tendency to think about the good side of eternity and eternity in God's covenant promises and blessings as being a physical reality and still not think about physical reality and judgment and think that it just is a spiritual thing or just burns out or you just kind of cease. But here, Jesus is making a very explicit claim when he says that those in these tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Everyone will be raised from death to life in the end. Everyone. And we will stand before God. We are created to be eternally existent beings and we will be raised in the end. But Jesus is promising here at the very end to bring perfect Justice. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He's saying, my judgment, my will, my desire is God's desire. Can you even imagine a world with perfect justice? When you look around us right now, can you imagine a place? I mean, we have evidence of injustice all the time of how people can buy their way past justice if they have the money, of abuses of power and authority. We've not just broken individuals, but also broken systems. This world is an unjust place, but Jesus is promising perfect justice in the end. Thank God. And so this whole section repeats essentially 
the first verse that we read, that the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what the father is doing. Whatever the father is, does, he's given the son to do. And this brings us to our last, the second, but our last truly, truly today, is truly, truly, Jesus calls us to believe. This is verse 24, which I want to put back up for you so we can see this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I hope you can see why we held this for third, because I think understanding the other two that bracket it helped this to just explode off the page for us. Look at what Jesus is saying. Just leave it up there for a minute. Look at what he's saying. Whoever does what? Hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He already said that those who hear his word have life, but now he's saying this is what it takes. You want to know what it takes to have the life that Jesus is calling us to and offering to us here? You want to know what, it t- what real Christianity is and what Jesus calls us to, not just whatever you might have built up in your head about what church life is or what, who Christians are. Like, you want to know what the core of it is? It's this. Whoever hears Jesus' words and believes in him has eternal life, not judgment, He doesn't come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Remember, already and not yet. This is, we need to hear this because we don't believe this. This is what we read in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I I don't think you believe it. Because there was no response. <laughs> I don't know, I don't think you can believe that and sit passively. I want you to hear these tied together again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, Jesus says, and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He has not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. There's no condemnation left for you if you're in Christ. If you're outside of him, then you will be resurrected to judgment. But there's no condemnation left for those in Christ. If we get this, it changes everything. Ray Ortland, who was here in August with us for our 10th anniversary, says we don't need more frightening punishments and more withering scoldings We need the all-sufficiency of Jesus applied in rich measure to our deepest points of personal need. And that is what the Holy Spirit does. He internalizes the triumphs of Christ crucified within the depths of the human being so that our inclinations start changing from evil to good. We don't live this way. We sit in judgment over ourselves with our own self-condemnation. We sit in judgment over others with our condemnation of them, joining the accuser in his work. If you're in Christ, you can rest today. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment. There's only life. 
I doubt that I'm alone in the lasting echoes of condemnation that ring through the dark fissures of my own heart. The voices that, of my own voice, the voices of others who have spoken an identity over me, reinforced by my own insecurities and fears, exacerbated by the whispers of the accuser himself. I don't think I'm alone. I think that's most of us. I think it's all of us, if we're honest. We might not ever run, outrun the shadows this side of death and life, but this is why we need this reminder. Truly, truly, Jesus says to you, whoever hears his word and believes him who sent Jesus has eternal life. He who sent Jesus has, he doesn't come into judgment, but you have passed from death to life. This is who Jesus is. This is the good news of the gospel. That you can rest today, that you can find true Sabbath today. Jesus is saying to these people, you're angry about the Sabbath? This is where you find rest. Whatever anxieties and fears and condemnation you feel, yes, death is looming. Yes, judgment and justice are coming. But you have heard the word of God today. And you have heard the promise that if you hear it and believe it, you will have life and no condemnation, no judgment remains for you. If you have heard the word of God and believed in Christ today, then you have already passed from death to life. And you're freed to live like that's true. Father, we need your help in this. We believe, would you help us in our unbelief? It's hard in the world that we live in to, to see it's too good to be true. It feels like it can't possibly be the case. So I pray today, Father, for every one of us that you would help us to see Jesus in his glory and majesty, to hear his words, his claims to be God. that you would stir our hearts to hear and believe and then trust that this is true? Would you breathe life into our weariness? Would you shine light into our own darkness? And then would you help us to be conduits of light and life in your grace in our lives, in the city, in our church, in our relationships. Lord, help us, we pray. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.